saw what he did to Saturday night. Now watch Bill Murray demolish Summer. Kids from the city escape to the woods for a summer of wholesome fun in the sun. I'm the program director, Jerry Aldini. Is that a bra you're wearing, or are you expecting an assassination attempt? And I have what doctors call very active glands. Trevor, is there something seriously wrong? Meet the head counselor who knows the facts of life, but forgot them. So this year, each camper will stalk and kill his own bear in our private wildlife preserve. The camp rules. Maury would like you all to take a look at these. We'll be in here if you want to check these out a little bit later. How's the light? Okay. Yeah, for now. But if you don't win, we cut it off. But more important than the score of this game is to score at the big social at our place tonight. Oh! It's not how you play the game, <laughs> but how you win that counts. Let the game I'm talking to you with the exceptionally round hair. Of course, it's going to come at the end of the summer uh, during Sexual Awareness Week. We import 200 hookers from around the world, and each camper, armed with only a thermos of coffee and $2,000 cash, tries to visit as many countries as he can. And the winner, of course, is named King of Sexual Awareness Week. You'll be cheering for Bill Murray this summer in Meatballs. It creates kind of a nice feeling there, sort of a gruff sweetness, you might almost call it. Meatballs is a pleasant, cheerful, unassuming summer entertainment and has its heart in the right place. And Bill Murray does a good job of holding things together. He has a confident, comic touch, kind of a nice, warm quality. I think kids appreciate you like this guy, you know, watching the movie. And so for the right audiences, which is to say for younger audiences, I think Meatballs is a lot of fun. Well, you're right. Murray does have a nice quality in the picture. I just was hoping this film would have been more like Animal House, sort of Animal House takes a vacation. Uh, I expected sort of a rougher, uh, more lusty kind of comedy, and this film doesn't have that. So if you're going to see Animal House, this isn't the picture that well, they've made. It's a lighter piece, and well, that's my disagreement. Okay, fine. It. It's not Animal House, but it's doing a lot of business. It's one of the biggest hits this summer mm -hmm. because kids are telling each other about it. And when you get word of mouth like that, it must indicate in some way that they, they like what they see. So I think for younger kids, once again, I'll say, this is a good movie. It's better than the Disney features. At yeah, least. it's better than watching some dragon fly around on Sunday, Saturday afternoon. Okay, but we split on Meatballs, the comedy about summer camp. I thought it was good fun for younger teenagers, but Gene said, no, send this movie to camp. All right, welcome awesome. to, to episode 26. 
Meatballs, uh, as you no doubt uh, discerned from the opening. That's uh, Gene Siskel pleading for more raunch and boobs out of his movies. So uh, as usual, I want to say, at least, hey, look, you know what? Roger Ebert was sort of more pervy, but he was open about it. I mean, I think it's Gene, true. It's Gene true. was like, uh, it's like, yeah, needed to see, needed to see more boobs and wanted more raunch out of a kid's movie. That's kind of it's weird. Gr- it, dude, it's, it's all about gruff sweetness versus rough and lusty yeah. is what it's about. <laughs> I think I wonder if we'll split along similar lines uh, you know, in 2022 when we're recording this. Maybe, maybe, maybe so. But this is episode 26. And this represents, I mean, depending on how you split it up, either a, the complete first year of CFX or the first of the second uh, full year of CFX episode. So uh, congratulations either way uh, to you, Slip. And when this is being recorded, oh yeah, that's totally a milestone, which is great. Uh, when this is being recorded and when it's going to be released is going to be the dead of winter for sure. Uh, so it's kind of weird to do a, the sum- most summary movie of all time. Um, but of course, you know, it is filmed in Canada. So how freaking summary could it really be? That's um, true. You know, when the movie starts out, Bill Murray talks about it's like 46 degrees in the morning or something when he yeah. first uh, does his little ri- first radio announcement. So maybe it is appropriate to have it in the winter um, instead of the summer. Yeah, it'll be probably in the in the March 2023 time frame when this is out. So a reminder of CFX conceit. So uh, this is the Cultural Futures Exchange. This is where we examine uh, different elements of cultural ephemera, movie today, obviously, but TV and music and books and other sort of things that come along that we want to look at from the time that they came out, the context, what's happened since, and our take on the future valuation of the item, if you should uh, invest in it, so to speak, and you know, go long, uh, don't invest or short it, go short and then, or stay neutral um, in a stock market sort of thing. That's what we do here. So let me uh, let me kick it off here by talking about my personal history. I don't, I don't think it's very long, but it's, I suppose, uh, significant. So I saw this movie either in the theater when it came out or right after. I don't actually remember seeing it in the theater, but I very well could have. Uh, I saw a lot of movies at that at that time. I liked it when I was a kid. I thought it was funny. Um, it was one of those movies that made the rounds in the early cable days. We had something, I think I've mentioned before, we didn't have cable, but we had something for a while called On TV. That's right, On Television. There was On TV. We should go over these real quick. So there was On TV. HBO was really early. Yeah. Uh, That was like in the 70s. There was On TV. There was Select TV. And there was Z Channel, which was a more artsy one. But I remember the On TV had this box. Yeah. Um, that you could flick on and off. And it was like it was the box that and, and you'd get this little TV guide for it. My aunt had it. Yeah. Um, And I was completely mystified by on TV. I thought it was like the greatest thing. And you would get like a little program just like HBO did for years. And I think they I don't know if they still do a print program. Probably not. But I remember going to hotels and seeing those. But yeah, I remember on TV. That was like Late 70s, I guess, yeah. when that came out. I mean, at some point, we'll probably do something where we deep dive into those different channels that were available kind of before cable and before streaming. Yeah, um, it was because over it was the part air. of our childhood. Yeah. Yeah, it was over the air. And it was just like, it was some, the box that you were talking about, like descrambled the signal. So yeah. people couldn't just pick it up. It was on, I think, some UHF frequency or something. I, I don't remember exactly. I'll have to do research about it. But we, we had it for a while. I don't, I don't, 
remember what happened. We didn't always have it. But there were these sorts of movies on it. They would play uh, Meatballs and Smokey and Abandon, all the movies of that time. So I definitely saw Meatballs plenty. I always liked it uh, as a kid. I thought it was funny. I, I do think uh, Bill Murray was uh, compelling in the role. We'll talk more about that as we go on here. Um, but anyway, you know, I watched it a lot and it was in the exact wheelhouse of, of the time for me. You know, I, in the late seventies, I was eight, nine, 10 years old, 11 years old, that kind of stuff, uh, in the early eighties. And so, um, yeah, this was going to camp. We talked about, uh, I talked about some of my experiences there in the endless summer episode, um, it wasn't in Canada and certainly wasn't the, um, you know, deep woods sort of version of summer camp, which, to be quite honest, it was pretty compelling. You know, watching it as a kid, it looked really cool to be in the woods. And well, where did you go to camp? Like, well, like Southern California, didn't go anywhere cool. Just like like, just like day where? camp. To what camp? Like day camp, not like day sleepaway camp. camp in, you oh, know, you didn't you didn't go into the mountains or anything? No, I I mean I think once or twice I did like a a week uh, at like it wasn't the whole summer for sure. Um, it was like a week or two. It was like in Topanga Canyon kind of places, right, not right. like anything exotic for sure. Um, so anyway, uh, I'll turn it over to you. All right. Yeah. So uh, important thing to mention right off the bat is I never saw this as a kid, which is like a huge hole in my viewing as a kid, because this was exactly the kind of movie I would have wanted to see. And I remember kids talking about it and stuff, um, you know, at the time. Obviously, Saturday Night Live was huge to us. You know, right. I was when Saturday Night Live first came out, I was like six years old. But by the time Bill Murray was a huge star on Saturday Night Live, he was on Saturday Night Live between 77 and 80. Around like 1979, I was perfect age for for that. Um, you know, and I mentioned in a previous episode, my you know, we'd go visit my cousin and my aunt and uncle and my dad and stepmom would would smoke weed and watch Saturday Night Live and we could smell it nice. and we could hear it. But we would also watch it sometimes. And I remember watching it around this age on some Saturdays. Um, and we were so into Bill Murray and all of this. And Animal House was, you know, obviously Animal House and this movie are inextricably linked because this is kind of, Animal House was the movie that Ivan Reitman wanted to direct. Um, and he wasn't given the opportunity, which we'll talk about why um, and how that happened. But he did produce it. He did help to produce the movie. And uh, that movie was kind of the gateway for this to happen because that movie was such a massive success and it kind of was rested on the mainly on the performance of, of a bunch of actors, but mainly, uh, you know, John Belushi. Um, and so it kind of showed that these Saturday Night Live uh, actors could be huge successes. Right. And there were a number of comedies after that. Right. Caddyshack being another huge one. Uh, around this time. So I just remember all of these movies being around and I hadn't seen Animal House either because it was rated R. So yeah. this movie is not rated R, um, but Animal House was rated R. And we'll talk about the whole sex comedy thing and, and the teen sex comedy thing and how this movie kind of straddles the line, like, you know, both Roger Ebert and, and Gene Siskel mentioned, right? That it's not really that explicit, you know, compared to something like Animal House. But I remember Animal House was huge and some of my friends like when I was like in fourth grade who were kind of had cooler parents they were able to see this movie I was not allowed to and I remember uh one of the cool kids like giving us all the nicknames of the characters in Animal House like there was a flounder 
and, <laughs> and stuff like that. So it was like this game we played in the playground and stuff. We kind of pretended to be the characters of Animal House, even though I had no idea, you know, what that actually entailed. Uh, Do because you remember I seen which the movie. character you were assigned? I don't remember what the nerdiest dorky. I might not have even been included. I was such a nerd that like I'm sure they would whatever the maybe flounder, flounder I wasn't probably fat enough yeah to be the Stephen first uh you know character but but I you know whatever the nerdiest character Tinto is. probably would have been the yeah Thomas Hulse I don't character. even remember but uh but at any rate one thing that this movie had a mystique for me uh and and watching it again so I finally saw it not too long ago I've watched it twice since since then um uh, but we had our locked. We have our lockdown film club. I have a film club with some people in friends of in LA, LA and Seattle and other other where other areas where we started doing this during the pandemic. And we watch a you know kind of a cult movie every every weekend, every Saturday night. I mean, I haven't gone to all of them, but you know during the pandemic, obviously I had nothing else to do. So we would watch like kind of a B movie or a cult movie or kind of a childhood favorite, and we watched Meatballs. So that was kind of the first time I saw it. And what struck me is the whole camp summer camp thing and how accurate it is. Like there, there is some scenes in this movie where I was just like, Oh my God, this reminds me of camp, but I didn't go to summer camp where it was like the whole summer or anything. I went to this thing in fifth grade Our school had this thing called outdoor school and outdoor school was like a week during the school year. It was actually, um, I think in the winter time, like, like, early early fall or maybe maybe early spring because i remember it was cold and we'd go up to i li- i grew up in the la area you know in orange county and we'd go to like big bear right um and and we had camp there the san bernardino mountains or whatever right um and we had like this outdoor school and basically what it was was a camp where you'd go hiking and you would do crafts and things and you would like study rocks and, you know, it's just an excuse to have like kind of a camp. And I just remember like the scenes they have in the cabins where they had a counselor and they had the girls separate from the guys and all this. I just remember that being so like uh, even the scene in the dining hall and stuff. Um you know, which is one of my favorites in the gossip scene. I mean, it was, it wasn't exactly like that, but it just really reminded me of that time. Um, and we went to another camp the next year. So this was fifth grade was outdoor school. And then sixth grade, since I grew up in Orange County, we actually had a camp in Catalina. And we went to a private part of Catalina. Catalina is an island off the coast of, of Los Angeles. And it's like mostly private, right? And then there's one, one uh, city, I think it's called Avalon. Right. That is just just the town where you can go. But most of the island is owned by uh, private groups and stuff. And this camp was run by this group that would basically it was like a three day camp. And you would go there and you would like study fish and stuff and do snorkeling and stuff like that. And it was pretty awesome, I have to say. But there was that whole thing of like, you know, the 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 whole idea of the guys sneaking up on the girls cabin and trying to spy in there and stuff. And we would do that. And there were teens who were kind of like the counselors in training in this in this film. So it really watching this again, I'm just like, man, this is kind of accurate. There there was some things that it really captured and then some things that are not accurate. Right. So so I remember that. And, you know, I always this is always a movie that was just such a gap in my movie viewing of the time just because it was so much like the other movies I wanted to see because it related, you know, to Bill Murray. And um, so, you know, obviously when I saw Ghostbusters, Bill Murray was like a huge hero by then to me. Um, but I'd never seen this, you know, until, until like this year, which is kind of nuts. Yeah. Um, really? Yeah. I know it's crazy. Right. Yeah. Um, 
so that's my background, right? So I think now let's let's move into the kind of zeitgeist of what this film was all about. And obviously, as I mentioned, the first thing we need to mention is this is completely related to the whole culture of comedy during the 70s and the and the uprising of Saturday Night Live, things like Saturday Night Live, the Groundlings, you know, SCTV and National Lampoon. Right. Um, all of this stuff was kind of becoming like kind of brewing in the early 70s. Um, and a lot of it, it's Canadian, right? I mean, obviously, Second City was in Chicago, but there were so many Canadian comedians, you know, like Dan Aykroyd, et cetera. Um, you know, it was it was it's kind of interesting because this is as we'll talk about, this is such a Canadian film. Yeah, it's totally. Yeah. And then and then, of course, you have, you know, one little thing that's kind of cool about this movie that was probably one of my favorite things about it, as I'll talk about in my eval, is the whole underdog you know, thing, you know, you have this story as we'll go in, we'll go into the plot in a bit, but, you know, you have the story of this, of this camp, um, and then a richer kid's camp next door, their kind of rivalry, right? Yeah. And, and you have this whole underdog thing, and that is directly from the Bad News Bears. Like, the Bad News Bears is kind of the ultimate underdog, you know, movie, because you have this baseball team that's bad, and then they end up doing well at the end they get a few good players and they do well but it's kind of like this sad sack team run by this old drunk played by walter <laughs> Matthau. um and mr and buttermaker yeah mr buttermaker drinking his boilermakers like yeah. in the in the in the you know he's pouring whiskey into his budweiser in the in the parking lot yeah classy. Um, so that's a classic one and i'm sure there are other examples of that but you know i when i think of these underdog movies i really think of these two movies that really influenced that revenge of the nerds would obviously piggyback on that as well. Right. Yeah. Um, and you have, then you have the concept of the teen sex comedy. And I was kind of thinking, well, what was the first one of these? You know, it's like, I was thinking maybe meatballs might've been one of the first ones, you know, an animal house is kind of a teen sex comedy, even though it's college age, but really there were all these movies in the early seventies that were like exploitation films, kind of like, I don't know if Roger Corman did a lot of them, but they're kind of of that Roger Corman wheelhouse. And they're these cheerleader films. So there's like the cheerleaders from like 1973. There's like swinging cheerleaders from 1974. There's like <laughs> cheerleaders revenge. And, and these movies like were much more explicit meatballs. I mean, you know, there, there were like boobs and stuff in these movies. I mean, topless girl, girls and stuff and there's usually some kind of land developer that wants to take over the school or something you know some rival yes massive uh, some, tracks of land yes. right exactly and and then there's this other movie that i found that was from 1978 so it's right before this which is called lemon popsicle and it's like a 50s coming of age movie and it's got nudity and it's got like you know the guy and the girl go to the movie theater and he's trying to reach around uh, you know, to 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 go down her shirt or whatever. Um, and this was another kind of thing, I think, that influenced this kind of thing. Um, and then, what of course, you Sunset have... Cove that you said. Oh, yeah, yeah. So so the other one is um, I have this uh, compilation of trailers called 42nd Street. That's all these kind of exploitation trailers that used to be shown in New York's 42nd Street. For those of you who don't know, Times Square used to be where they would show like Kung Fu movies and porn films. And it was like really trashy before like it got cleaned up in like the late 80s, early 90s and became more like, you know, uh, red, you know, giant red lobsters and Bubba Gump shrimp and this tourist trap kind of thing. And it's yeah. much more cleaned up now, but it was really trashy and, and sleazy back in the seventies. And, um, 
one of the movies, the trailers was this for this film called Sunset Cove. And we'll, I guess we'll link to it in the Instagram because it's freaking amazing. It's like complete exploitation. You know, there's boobs in the trailer. It's like explicit and it's just super funny. Just like these teens driving bands around and these cops chasing them and stuff. And, <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's, and it's so, it's so like just about teens having sex and, you know, like, bikinis and boobs and stuff but the trailer's just really funny because it's such trash you know but this but that's the kind of thing that was around they were much more exploitation than animal house is also exploitation but it kind of elevated the genre because it's actually funny and you know again i haven't watched it in years i don't know how it holds up but well i'm sure we'll get to that one Uh, because that was such a iconic film and it also showed that these new talents on saturday night live could just create massive box office right because john belushi just became an absolute superstar after that movie came out and he was already kind of a cult figure to people because of his stuff on saturday night live but this movie just skyrocketed him in popularity and it was just a blockbuster right it was just a landmark blockbuster and it kind of ushered in all these other kinds of comedies like what we mentioned with caddyshack and, and meatballs was one of those um and then you have the whole concept of nerds you know, in this movie, you have a character named Spaz who has the whole tape around his glasses. And I mean, this character was so influential to movies after after this. And we'll probably talk about that on our eval. But I was kind of like, well, where did this come from? The whole concept of the nerd, right? right. Because we talked about this in Happy Days a lot. They were nerds. They called them nerds. And um, it's funny. The term was actually coined, coined by Dr. Seuss in the early 50s, like in his book, like, it's called If I Ran the Zoo or something. I forget what it's called, but we'll we'll link to it. Um, but he 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 characterized a, a kind of disreputable character as a nerd, and then the kind of uh, you know nomenclature took off. And there's also uh, you know in the seventies there's this you know obviously we had like Potsy and and Ralph Malf and and Richie Cunningham and, and Happy Days that were nerds. And you had Eddie Deason, who's like kind of the characteristic nerd in Greece. Yeah. Um, and he would be in a bunch of other movies, but he's kind of like the quintessential nerd. And then you had this episode of the Rockford Files. I was like, where did I first see the taped glasses? I'm sure it came before this, but there's this episode called Beamer's Last Case where this character named Beamer is like this wannabe Rockford. He, he tries to like solve cases and kind of he's like a thorn in Rockford's side. And he's got those glasses. He's got the taped glasses. Yeah. So that was kind of um, a thing because I, I just think that one character in this movie really stand, stood out to me as like, wow, this this character really influenced a whole series of characters, even though you had Eddie Deason a little bit before it. it really became a thing in the 80s to have these nerd characters and well, became and much more uh, pronounced and you know uh, influential as you said that uh, this movie was so popular it wasn't a niche thing anymore that he was like the iconic nerd played for comic effect right. yeah that's right and then you have like summer camp itself right summer camp movies and ironically this film was originally going to be called summer camp we'll talk about the whole title change during the history but there was actually another movie another exploitation movie called summer camp that came out the same year. And that's one of the reasons they changed the title. But, um, you know, obviously you had the Friday the 13th movies where summer camp is a huge thing. Like it's totally different than meatballs, but it was around this same time where they use uh, the camp as the setting for all the killings. Right. And the whole right. story of Jason revolves around this camp. And then you had another movie come out, which was another teen sex movie, kind of a comedy, kind of a drama uh, with Christy McNichol and Tatum O'Neill called Little Darlings. And I remember 
wanting to see this movie too. And it's about two girls that are in a competition to see who can lose their virginity first at this camp. So that was another movie that was around the time, right? (laughs) That was another one of these movies that was kind of a teen comedy. Um, And so I think that's it. Unless you wanted to say anything else about Zeitgeist, I think that was kind of everything uh, that I can think of. No, just to comment on your saying about this being a very Canadian movie, I I think, uh, you know, we both watched a little mini documentary about meatballs and how it was made in Canada by Canadians and all that. We'll get into all that. But the whole idea of summer camp, I think what they were saying in the Canadian culture is even bigger, right? And these kids from Toronto and, you know, other cities in, in Canada um, Montreal, I would suppose, and others like going to summer camp and going and getting some sun and having fun. It just seemed like something that most kids did. It just was a big part of the Canadian culture. Well, they have all that, you know, that nature. Yeah. I mean, they've got all the yeah. mountains and the, you know, the forests and stuff and, you know, the hiking because it's that's just the way it's Canada. Yep. So it's like would make sense. Right. Yep, definitely. All right. So let's talk about the movie, the plot, the characters. So um, to start off, you know, the Bill Murray character is named Tripper Harrison, and he is sort of the head male counsel, uh, counselor at, at Camp uh, North Star, uh, which is one of the two camps that are featured in the, in the movie. And he is sort of training a group of, you know, it's, not, it's unclear how old these guys are supposed to be. I always kind of thought them to be like college age. They were just a summer job. Um, during college, the camp is located somewhere in Canada. Although it's not really ever said it, it, it's Canada. They talk about the North Woods, which, you know, I guess maybe assumes it's Canada. The uh, camp director is Morty Melnick. Um, and that is played by a guy named Hartby Atkin. And so, uh, you know, Tripper Harrison is sort of the lead uh, dude there. There is a boy who's featured in the movie um, increasingly as the plot goes on by the name of Rudy Gurner, who is played by Chris Makepeace. And they, the movie kind of sets it up as he's kind of this lone, loner of a kid, um, you know, and doing research that had this whole backstory that's not, it was maybe edited out of the movie, that his uh, mom died and his father's a workaholic and sort of, you know, parked him at the summer camp uh, all summer to get rid of him. That's not really talked about in the final cut. It's just sort of the father, you know, dumps him off. He doesn't really want to go. He's very shy lacks uh, self-confidence and, and so forth. Um, and over the course of the movie, he builds a, a good relationship with the uh, Tripper Harrison, Bill Murray character. Um, a lot of the rest of the movie centers around the, the, uh, the CITs, right? The counselors in training these, these teenagers, um, you know, who are, you know, perform all sorts of hijinks on each other and are involved in things. The, a um, lot of uh, romance stuff involving the, the CITs. There's this uh, woman, young woman named Candace, who has a thing for Crockett, one of the, the male, um, you know, CITs uh, played by Russ uh, Bannum. Uh, most of these people, um, with very few exceptions, didn't ever act before or were like local acting circuit people in Toronto. Um, These were not well-known people. They were either non-actors, people have never acted, or, you know, very minor roles. The Spaz character, which you talked about uh, previously, uh, this guy named Jack Blum, was actually the casting director for the movie, who was pressed into service because they were, when they were casting this, they saw like 10,000 kids or something, some huge number in Toronto, just trying to find people to be in it. Uh, 
kids and teenagers and people to play the CITs. I guess they couldn't find the the um, you know quintessential nerd, so so Jack Blum took up the the nerd mantle and, and did quite a good job of it and became you know kind of an iconic character in Spaz. There's another young woman named Jackie who's kind of a tomboy in Spaz, kind of eventually develops a thing for her. There's a really beautiful kind of bikini, often bikini-clad uh, girl named Wendy, um, who is played by Cindy Gerling, kind of a blonde bombshell uh, type and so on. There's a fat kid named Fink, uh, played by, uh, what's this guy's name? Keith uh, Knight. Keith Knight, yep. Yeah. Um, and then there's a bunch of, you know, there's other characters we'll get into, all minor characters in the, in the overall plot. On the ladies' side, the main female head counselor um, is named Roxanne. Um, and she, it, I don't know if she ever had a last name, but it's played by the actress Kate Lynch, another Canadian. These are all, with the exception of Bill Murray, um, I believe Canadians. Yeah. Um, yep. And at the, the main plot is, uh, you know, hijinks at the camp. And then the competition with the rich kids camp called uh, Camp uh, uh, Mohawk, right? So they lived across the lake, uh, this fictional place, I, I, I think. Um, but it was actually the same camp. They filmed both at the same exact place, and they tried to make it look different. The North Star kids kind of had ragtag uh, shirts and torn you know, shorts and things like that, and the rich kids were often outfitted in these bright orange camp mohawk uh, sort of things. Um, and they had a, a competition that they played out over an Olympiad sort of event that happened over multiple days um, throughout the summer. And a big part of the plot is this Olympiad and, and the, the poor kids camp. Uh, camp North Star always loses to the rich kids. Uh, it, and something that I'll get into in my evaluation, the the slobs versus snobs, uh, you know, trope a little bit. But, uh, the, you know, without going into every last little uh, turn here, as you were talking about the underdogs uh, overcome, right? It, and uh, culminating with a, uh, a running uh, contest uh, run uh, uh, won by Rudy Gurner, who um, the nerdy kid who's sort of an outcast. Um, he makes some mistakes in a soccer game and cost his team the game and you know he's being you know out, yelled at and bullied for for messing up that game but he sees uh, the tripper character running starts running with him has some some sort of talent for it and winds up winning the big uh, running contest marathon at the end and uh, pushing camp north star uh, to victory there's a there's a couple uh, iconic scenes that we'll get into where he's or tripper harrison uh, Bill Murray rallies the uh, despondent Camp Mo uh, Camp North Star troops who are losing badly to Camp Mohawk in a in a key scene that we'll get into. But for the most part, that is just the backdrop for them to have the usual camp hijinks. Um, you know, kidnapping the the main guy who like runs the camp and placing him in various places while he's asleep. The usual panty raid sort of, uh, you know, tropes and, and and things like that. So, yeah, it's really weird how this movie is plotted, because like the first half of the movie is really just these little sequences that are kind of disparate and they just have various CITs and various Bill Murray. And then you have this kind of main thread that's his relationship with Rudy. Right. That's kind of on the side of that. But the but there's no real actual plot to the movie for a long time. You have like these weird little comedic scenes. And then when the Olympiad kicks in, then it becomes really like a story, right? right? There's this whole driving thing with the Olympiad, but the rest of it's kind of these little 
vignettes that work to varying degrees, you know, but it's interesting how it's kind of episodic and, you know, you have these weird, he also has this radio, like this shortwave radio kind of intercom system around the camp. And there'll be these comedic interludes where he's kind of, uh, kind of, uh, you know, making jokes and stuff on this. And that's how the film starts, right? Where he gets up in the morning and he does this announcement and that kind of gives you a feeling for how the film's going to go. And these kind of announcements are sprinkled throughout the film. And then you have these little kind of comedic interludes like a tennis game or the nerd, the nerd and the fat guy are playing the, you know, uh, against two girls. And then you have like, you know, uh, this scene in a canoe where the nerd, uh, loses the oar because of the hot Sydney girling girls in the bikini and he's distracted by that. You know, there's all kinds of stuff like that. It's really interesting uh, how it's structured, you know, and it, and, it, and we'll go into the history of it. It'll kind of make sense why that is, I think. Um, but, but yeah, that's kind of, that's, I mean, as far as the plot goes, it's really very episodic until you get to the end where there's this Olympiad that's actually very structured like a competition. You know, yeah. and it has like this kind of forward movement toward the end uh, that the rest of the film doesn't have. It's kind of just, uh, you know, a series of funny sequences, but there's not like a a strong plot thread, except for maybe Rudy and and Tripper's relationship. Right. right? That's right. Yeah. And and, you know, mixed into this, all of the CIT characters, uh, the boys and the girls wind up pairing up in various ways having their own relationships. Tripper Harrison has a relationship with the head counselor, Roxanne, that is, uh, we're led to understand, has been going on for several summers, um, kind of on and off. And that seems to be the theme. There's another uh, pair of CIT's wheels uh, played by um, a guy named Todd Hoffman has a relationship with an, uh, a female CIT named AL. I think that's her initials. Yeah. Um, yeah. Played by Christine DeBell, who had a uh, maybe a little more interesting character uh, in another movie that uh, uh, called Alice in Wonderland. That's like pretty much flat out porn after this time. Right, dude. Yeah. It's like she was a porn star. Yeah. Before. The, it's so crazy. They're like, we're going to do this movie that, hey, like, according to Roger Ebert, kids love it. It's great for younger kids. And yeah. we have this one actress who plays one of the cits who was actually like you look her up you're gonna see some wieners around her you know it's like it's like a full explicit <laughs> but, porn buzzing film. around her head as it were yeah <laughs> exactly there's a bunch of wieners in the picture uh you know it's kind of nuts that was this she before was just, or after before oh okay wow 1976 really? dude oh that's so when this cast Alice in Wonderland. yeah they cast a porn star as this nice. as this kind of side character it's really crazy yeah Kind of a sweet, innocent uh, character, too. Yeah. You know? Yep. Um, yeah. So that's interesting. Uh, some of the other characters, we mentioned the um, character named Bobby Crockett. Uh, one of the CITs has a, a relationship with uh, Candace, another uh, CIT who there's this other guy who works at the camp um, named Lance, who's after Candace and who's kind of, you know, played up for comic uh, relief because he's such a, a dick, just a blowhard. Always talking. Yeah, he's like about a real egotistical, yeah, you know, kind of character. And yeah, expensive shoes and how you know how much money he has and stuff like that. But he works like as a sailing instructor at Camp North Star. He's not making that much money there, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you have the uh, Spaz character we talked about. He sort of winds up having a little bit of an innocent relationship with with Jackie, one of the 
female uh, CITs, kind of a tomboy athlete. Um, Keith Knight, you, we mentioned plays Fink, uh, Larry Finkelstein, who is the big fat kid who wins an important contest in the, uh, the Olympiad, a hot dog eating contest. Um, Cindy Gerling as Wendy, who is the super hot bikini clad one we were talking about. A guy named Hardware, who is always running around the camp fixing stuff and stealing air conditioners and things like that. Uh, played by a guy named Matt Craven. A bunch of other minor characters you've never heard of, actors you've never heard of, probably never actually worked again. But uh, that, that's the idea. They all kind of got together. They had a lot of events where it was just the CITs doing, running off and going on overnight camping trips and you know getting into trouble and causing problems for uh, Morty or Mickey, depending on the scene, uh, Melnick, who, who runs uh, the camp. So anything else on the, the plot or the characters you wanted to talk about? Well, so- we got to talk about Chris Makepeace, right? He, yes. was, uh, he, he was the lead uh, kind of kid, and he um, is in another one, a movie of this time that was huge for me, which was called My Bodyguard, which we will definitely do in a future episode. This was a movie that was a major influence on me. I love this movie. I've seen it multiple times. Um, and it's really good. And and then we should mention that he recorded some spoken dialogue for The Elder. Yeah. Kiss's concept album produced by Bob Ezrin with the plans of making it a feature film. Man, I wish that would have happened. <laughs> um, but The Elder, of course, was notoriously unsuccessful and is looked upon as a blight on uh, Kiss's career, even though I don't think it's as bad as some of the stuff they would do later. Yeah, um, in the and- shade. Yeah, like I think the elder is way more interesting, but it's pretty funny. Uh, it's kind of almost like a, I don't know, it's almost like a Kiss prog rock album, but it's like a concept album, and it's really ridiculous. But I love the idea that they were going to try to make it into a film. There's actually a huge book on it. I want to get there's huge this huge book on the whole making of the elder and all about this film that was going to happen. Um, I'm interested in that. So if we ever do the elder, I'll be prepared for it. Um, but yeah, that's basically it. I mean. One thing I'm going to mention in my evaluation, but I'm going to mention now, as you as you probably guessed, there's so many freaking counselors in training. I don't know how they need so many counselors in training. There are more counselors in training than there are kids at the camp, it seems like. <laughs> seems like, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Rudy's like the one exception. They spend a lot of time on him. But, you know, there, there's a couple other kids that might be worth noting. Like one of the kids that's funny is at the beginning, uh, you know, when all the kids are meeting, uh, meeting the buses to go out to the camp, there's this kid who's all complaining about the safety of, of the, of the camp. Like he's kind of a little comic relief, this little kid, but I don't know who played that kid, but yeah, that's basically the story. It's, it's like a series of vignettes and then you have this big Olympiad at the end. Um, and that, you know, is where a lot of the entertainment and, and, jokes come in and stuff like that and there's some you know some funny stuff but we'll get into it before we get into that let's get into how this was made in the background so first i want to get into ivan reitman right so ivan reitman uh this was his first film as a uh well his first major film as director he had made a couple of others uh that we'll get to but he was um you know obviously he became a big huge comedy director in the 80s um and this and and this was his first real success and he also was known as a producer. He produced a ton of films. So we'll get into that after, you know, in later in the history as we, after we go through the filmmaking itself. But, you know, he was born in Czechoslovakia. His he was, uh, you know, his mother had actually been at, in Auschwitz. Wow. Um, and his parents, you know, he was essential 
uh, post-World War II refugee, and they migrated to Canada. And he grew up there, and then he went to McMaster. With, with uh, probably a young uh, Getty Lee, you know, uh, parents, similar That's story. right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, that's right. Getty Lee's parents were in the in the camps. Yeah, I don't know where where he's from though. Poland, uh, he, I think. Oh, is, Poland. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So anyway, uh, you know, they migrated to Canada. He grew up there, and he went to McMaster University, and he made this film called Orientation, that was kind of a parody of the college orientation, and it actually was accomplished enough that they thought about actually releasing it for real. Um, but he decided he wanted to become a director and he ended up directing this exploitation film called Cannibal Girls. Maybe we'll put the trailer because it's amazing um, <laughs> you know, that that uh, he had sold to these filmmakers who were these kind of Roger Corman's of Canada, you know, yeah. filmmakers who just buy these producers who would just buy exploitation films. And it made a little money. Um, and he also produced David Cronenberg, you know, the great Canadian filmmaker, horror filmmaker, uh, David Cronenberg's first two films, Shivers and Rabid. Um, so he was kind of producing and directing at the same time. And then he got he hooked up with Harold Ramis, the writer, you know, the famous comedy writer, Harold Ramis and director uh, and director, eventual director who um, they were working on this thing called the National Lampoon Radio Show. And uh, so he got hooked up with them and he really wanted to direct their movie they were planning, which was Animal House. Um, but the um, producers decided he wasn't experienced enough to direct. So that's why they got John Landis, who was more experienced to direct the film. So he really wanted to make a film and that's how Meatballs eventually would be created. Now, of course, in order to create Meatballs, in order for it to be a success, he needed a star and his star was Bill Murray. So Bill Murray, um, his background, he was born in 1950 in Illinois, and he was one of nine siblings. And of course, we know uh, his, one of his older brothers, Brian Doyle Murray, was also involved in this, in this uh, you know, world, um, who would also work beyond Saturday Night Live, actually, after Bill Murray was in the 80s. Um, he, would, he had gone to school and studied as, uh, for pre-med, but he ended up dropping out. And a funny story is in 1970, he was actually busted for trying to smuggle 10 pounds of weed on a plane. Uh, I guess he didn't do much time for that. But uh, yeah, that's pretty crazy. Um, he, he eventually decided to go to Second City in Chicago because his older brother, Brian Doyle Murray, was, was there. And he became uh, a star of that you know, just a high, very high profile star. He was obviously extremely talented at improv and just, just a great comedic actor. I got a, um, I got a quick trivia question for you about the Murrays. All right. You said Brian Doyle Murray, Bill Murray. There's another Murray who is in a feature film. Do you know which one? I think I read about this other brother, but I don't remember. It was a movie that, well, we, I don't know if we'll ever cover, but it's called Moving Violations. Oh, and yeah. it was Dana Murray, who looks oh, like, wow. like Bill Murray, like melted a little bit. It's oh, wow. Weird. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so so he eventually got hooked together with, uh, you know, he eventually moved to New York and started working on the National Lampoon Radio Hour with John Belushi. And then, of course, he got on SNL. He was sort of the replacement for Chevy Chase in 1977, in a way. Um, and he became a huge star on that. and then. Of course, Meatballs was his first feature film, and it kind of showed, as we'll talk about, that he was really good for box office because it was a huge success. 
So um, originally, uh, you know, uh, when he tried to get Bill Murray to be part of the film, Bill Murray kind of balked and wasn't really that interested, it seemed like. And he um, ended up kind of showing up three days into filming. And he just wore his own clothes through the whole shooting. So it's kind of funny because I think I think actually some of the things one of the things that's coolest about this movie is the way he dresses. He like has this really cool Willie Nelson T-shirt. He's got these kind of bowling shirts. It kind of really helps the character because he's kind of this rebel. You know, he's kind of this cool guy who doesn't play by the rules, kind of the archetype of the hero, anti-hero of that time. Um, And it kind of fit. Um, I don't know. Did you want to jump into the uh, details of the filming or should I continue? Yeah, I mean, it just took place at a real camp called White Pine on a place called Hurricane Lake, somewhere between Halliburton and West Gulliford, Ontario, in the summer of 1978. And as I mentioned before, it was all Canadians, with the exception of Bill Murray. And most of the cast were either non-professional. The kids, for the most part, were just the campers. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And uh, quasi-professional actors, you know, with very little experience. And we mentioned that Spaz was originally the casting uh, director. So I'll let you continue. Yeah, we should we should mention so that during the filming, they were actually filming at a real summer camp during summer camp. Right. So they actually had a lot of the kids you see in the dining hall and stuff were actually kids going to the camp. And the camp, the people who ran the camp were actually, you know, in order to do this, you have to just kind of let the camp do its thing and you have to let all the kids, you know, just kind of be where they are. But of course, Ivan Reitman was trying to move. Oh, let's get this kid here. Let's get this kid here. And the camp was like against that. And then the other thing is the, the kids couldn't really do anything while they were filming. So they couldn't actually get out on the canoes or do the hikes or any of the summer camp activities, you know, playing soccer or whatever that they would normally do. So the kids really hated, came to hate the filming and hate the crew. And they started sabotaging the crew. They would do stuff like, you know, flatten tires of vehicles. They would just uh, F with the cameras and stuff like that, which I thought was hilarious. And it's kind of ironic because it's, it's like they stopped a summer camp from happening. And then when you actually watch the movie, there's very little of the kids who are supposed to be the center of this movie. Right. It's much more about the CITs That's than right. the kids. Like it's 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 kind of one of my beefs with the movie because it's kind of crazy, uh, the whole idea. But you know, we'll talk about that more. Um, but basically, uh, you know, the um the original title was Summer Camp, and uh they originally had a screenplay that was like 300 pages long, which is like a three-hour plus movie. Um, and when they filmed the movie, it ended up being kind of a mess. You know, we talked about how it was largely plotless for the beginning half of the movie. It's a series of vignettes and they didn't. And when they kind of got it together, they realized, you know, this is not going to sell. It's, it's kind of a mess. So what they decided to do was bring back uh, Bill Murray and um, Chris Makepeace and film some scenes between them. And I think that was a smart move because those scenes really kind of give it the film uh, maybe that, um, gruff sweetness that uh roger ebert is talking about you know these scenes between bill murray and 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 rudy and of course bill murray is a master improviser so he would improvise a lot of these these interactions including his other interactions and other scenes um that you know and it really worked so once they got this to get all together they decided to change the name to meatballs because they wanted 
a name that would just kind of be like people would think of the film, you know, like MASH, because MASH doesn't really mean anything that obvious. Obviously, it means something in, in accordance with the movie, the initials MASH. Mobile, but Meatballs. Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. There you go. But no one's going to think when they think MASH, they're not going to think of that. They're going to think of the movie or the TV show. Um, but with meatballs, obviously, meatballs are a thing. So that was kind of weird. But it was just kind of a memorable tag on it. And what's funny is the word meatballs only mentioned once in the film during a tennis match between uh, Fink and Spaz and Jackie and Brenda, uh, where Spaz, of course, is fumbling and playing really badly. And and Finks calls him you you meatball or something, and that's the only mention of the of the term. So it was kind of funny. Um, now the movie uh, was sold to Paramount, and the movie cost one point three million to make, but they already got like three million for the movie because I think Paramount recognized they had a hit on their hands, and the movie ended up becoming massive. It grossed over seventy million dollars, and it became the most successful Canadian film up until that time. I don't know what the most successful Canadian film is now, but it's not Meatballs, but it but it basically became the hugest Canadian film and became a, a real a real surprise hit. Um, it was relatively critically divided. I think some critics, you know, as we saw in Cisco Neighbor, they were divided. I think some critics didn't think it was that funny. Um, and some critics just thought and some critics thought, you know, there was it, it was it was a fun movie. You know, maybe not as hilarious as something like Animal House with laugh out loud scenes, but it was more fun. Yeah. Um, but it was well received in Canada. And this was the year the first Genie Awards were around. So I guess, you know, as Grammy, as the Grammy is to the Juno, the Canadian Grammy, the Oscar was to the Genie for a time. And the Genie only lasted from 1980 to 2012. So it was, it was, it was retired. But this was the first year it was given out. And the film was nominated for many Genie Awards. It was nominated for Best Picture. It was nominated for Bill Murray, who was Best Foreign Actor. <laughs> he was American. Um, and uh, Chris Chris Makepeace was nominated. Deborah Karen, the editing, the editor was nominated. Um, but it won for Best Screenplay by Len Bloom, Dan Goldberg, and Janice Allen. And then also Kate Lynch also won the first ever Best Actress Genie Award for her portrayal of Roxanne. Nice. So it was well received. And of course, there are sequels because it was successful. And the sequels are fucking crazy. Right. I mean, I mean, you would think obviously they probably want to bring back Bill Murray if they could. Uh, either they couldn't or they they weren't able to or whatever. But the, the first sequel was made in 1984. So five years later, it has absolutely nothing to do with the original. And, it, you know, it's the camp has been renamed Camp Sasquatch. And of course, there's a rival camp. There is in all of these. Um, and somehow the plot in, involves hiding this E.T. kind of alien named Meathead. Yeah, I saw this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kim Richards is in it. Remember her? Yeah. Kim Richards yeah. from Escape from Witch Mountain, yeah. among other things. Yeah. Tough Turf. Another great film. Uh, and then, of course, they they followed this up. Now. I'm sure Meatballs 2 uh, wasn't a success, Meatballs Part 2. And then they followed this up with Meatballs 3, Summer Job. Mm. Now, this one does have a, 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 it does have a relationship to the first film. And they actually asked Chris Makepeace to come back. But he was one, once he read the plot, he was not interested. Um, so they had a young Patrick Dempsey play the part of Rudy Gurner as an adult now, who's now a counselor in training. 
And um, he's still a virgin in this film. Mm. And the whole plot is he receives guidance from the ghost of a dead porn star played by Sally Kellerman. Who, who better on, to get advice from, right? Right. And, and she gives him advice that enables him to lose his virginity to a kind of MILF played by Shannon Tweed. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it basically was uh, ridiculous, right? Life and of... Then, and then we have the the final sequel, at least up until this time, which is Meatballs 4, To the Rescue, made in 1992, which, of course, stars Corey Feldman of, as of a course. water ski instructor who happens to dance a lot like Michael Jackson, of course. <laughs> yeah. um, and it involves another competition with Rich Kids Camp. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's up with the youth, man? Yeah, that's right. I remember his uh, hit, What's Up With The Youth. Actually, it wasn't a hit. But that was so <laughs> weird. How he had this obsession with Michael Jackson, and he always would do these impressions. And he just thought that was cool, even until the 90s, which it never was cool. Yeah. Um, at any rate, so obviously the movie was a success. It had these terrible sequels. But as far as what happened to some of the players afterwards... Um, you know, Chris Makepeace, not much happened with him. He was in a few more things like My Bodyguard, and then he eventually became an assistant director, which I think he still is today. Um, obviously, the big stars of this movie, the ones who kind of had the most success afterwards, were the director, Ivan Reitman, and Bill Murray. And they collaborated together again in 1981 in Stripes, which was another big hit. And then, of course, their biggest hit together, 1984's Ghostbusters, which was the biggest film of that year. Um, and was and one of I, the biggest all times it has. To yeah. Be. One of the biggest, probably one of the biggest comedies of all time. And of course that movie was so successful. It spawned a sequel Ghostbusters 2, which is fucking terrible. Um, and it inspired, and, and of course, a couple of reboots, uh, 2016's Ghostbusters with the all female cast. And then just this last year, Ghostbusters Afterlife, which is actually a direct kind of sequel to the, to the first film, but kind of a reboot as well. Ivan Reitman, uh, Goes on to direct more films, mostly terrible. Uh, Ghostbusters 2, I mentioned Legal Eagles. Twins, just mm. one of the worst movies I've ever seen. That was We watched that recently in our lockdown film club. And one of uh, the person who runs it, uh, Barb's cousin, my wife's cousin, uh, was having trouble sleeping. And it turns out Twins was the absolute cure to that. She yeah. fell asleep in the middle of the film because it's so boring. And then, of course, the other Arnold Schwarzenegger comedy, Junior, where he's a pregnant man. And Kindergarten Cop, one of the worst Arnold movies. Um, you know, but he was also a producer. That one produced... has its moments. I, I don't know if oh, I think yeah. it's as bad as, as the others, as Junior or Twins. Oh no, no. It's 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 got it's much funnier than those. Yeah. Like it has, yeah, it has some funny dialogue. It has some funny, you know, Arnold. It's Arnold, not a tumor. It is not a tumor. Yeah, that's kind of funny. But he produced a bunch of movies, too, including Heavy Metal, which we're going to get to, I promise, because it's one of my favorite movies ever, even though I will attest that it's not a great film. I don't care. I love it. Um, and uh, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot with uh, Sylvester Stallone. Terrible. Uh, Space Jam. Private Parts, you know, with yeah. Howard Stern. Uh, the, the 2017 reboot of Baywatch, of course, the Ghostbusters reboot. But my favorite story about Ivan Reitman is he had he wanted to make a Batman movie. He had a film, a screenplay called The Batman. It's not the same The Batman that was just released in 2022 with, um, you know, what's his name? Uh, I forget that guy's name. Anyway, um, uh, oh, Robert Pattinson as Batman. It isn't the same screenplay as that, but it had Bill Murray as Batman. Oh, wow. And my favorite, David Bowie as the Joker. How fucking oh, awesome would that, that be? It, that would have been interesting. <laughs> hey, sure. if they had Michael Keaton as Batman, he's kind of like a B-rate Bill Murray anyway. So yeah. 
Um, at any rate, and of course, Bill Murray became this massive star. You know, obviously, Ghostbusters was huge. He was also in Caddyshack. Um, you know, he was in Scrooge. Groundhog Day was massive. He was also in, uh, had a really funny part in the movie Kingpin. The best uh, part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love Kingpin. Maybe we'll do that one. Um, but I mean, he's Char- so he's so good at Kingpin. Yeah, so he was. Funny. Anyway, obviously Charlie's Angels is kind of dubious, but it was a big hit. Um, and then Zombieland, he plays himself in a kind yeah. of funny part. But he also became this serious actor. Like of all the Saturday Night Live alum, he's like by far the most respected actor. Uh, you know, he he originally he had this passion project that he wanted to do, which was an um, adaptation of W. Somerset Mom's Razor's Edge. And it was a bomb, but he was wildly critically acclaimed for his performance. Um, and then, of course, he w- had a great part in Ed Wood. Um, mm-hmm. And then he would work in Rushmore uh, and a bunch of other Wes Anderson films. And he was amazing in those. And then obviously his most famous kind of breakthrough performance was in Lost in Translation. He won a bunch of critics awards and was nominated for best actor for that, uh, you know, Sofia Coppola's film. And then he's in Jim, some Jim Jarmusch films like Broken Flowers, et cetera. And he's very acclaimed. But of course, uh, you know, recently, um, you know, we'll talk about this in our evals and whether we think this film stands the test of time. He's been in some trouble in the last few years. Um, but based on decades of bad behavior, behind the scenes. I mean, he was known for kind of sexually harassing his female co-stars, you know, and it's well funny because there's a funny, there's actually a scene in this movie that kind of creeped me out after knowing all this stuff, uh, which we'll get into um, in my eval. But basically, you know, yeah, he's he's been wildly criticized and they actually had to delay. Uh, there's this comedy that Aziz Ansari, Ansari was making with him and they actually had to delay the filmmaking because of his onset behavior. Um, and he's been, you know, really called out for that recently. So that's kind of where I'll leave it. And we'll see whether, uh, you know, his legacy of meatballs can derail this uh, bad, uh, bad publicity or whether, uh, you know, uh, it won't. You know, we'll see in our evaluations. To the point of the making of this movie, um, most of the people who at least they interviewed on camera seemed to have a very good experience with him making this movie. Uh, yeah. No one yeah. complained in this movie. I mean, people yeah. were generally like, yeah, he was amazed. They were just like laughing all the time Yeah, because he would just improvise stuff on the fly. And he was just such a amazing comedic actor. And, you know, if we evaluate, if we're just evaluating this film, I mean, you can't ignore that. I mean, he's, I don't think this film would be even known if, if he weren't in it. Right. That's um, right. Anyway, we'll, we'll leave that for the evaluations though. So why don't you kick us off? Yeah. So we talked a little bit about this, the kind of snobs versus slobs meme of this movie was omnipresent at the time. Um, certainly that was the case in animal house, right? Uh, you had the deltas and, you know, against the, um, Oh, what's the name of the other fraternity? I can't believe I forgot it, but the one with all the Kevin Bacon and, uh, you know, all those guys. Oh, I don't even remember. Uh, oh, I should know this. Oh, I might have to edit this in because it's so embarrassing. So anyway, um, the um, the writing uh, crew here for Meatballs uh, mined the shit out of this. This is Harold Ramis is one of the writers. And obviously we had uh, Animal House where... Um, they did this, they have Caddyshack, it's the same idea. You know, you have the snobs versus uh, slobs sort of thing. And of course, meatballs, you have the same tropes. 
Uh, you have the Camp North Star kids who, um, you know, certainly I, I wouldn't say are poor. You know, no, poor kids aren't going to summer camp for the most part. But it was, you know, the middle class kids versus the upper crust kids with their golf clubs and their, um, you know, personal masseuses and, you know, making jokes about all that kind of stuff. Um, you had the uh, spouse. We talked about the tape glasses and then you had um, the age of the cast. Uh, I wanted to talk about, which is that the CITs, I think they're supposed to be roughly college age kids, but there's a scene um, where they're gathering the kids for the, um, you know, going to the camps, uh, getting on the buses, going to the respective Camp Mohawk and Camp um, North Star. And where there's a scene where uh, some of the Mohawk uh, counselors or CITs dump a milkshake on Spaz's head. Some of these guys look to be about 35. <laughs> yeah, totally. And they've got the like the sweater around the neck. It's, yeah. it's like a total classic preppy. And I'm just like, man, this scene is like so influential. Like this, this scene is just like the archetype for half of 80s comedy with these guys with the, the preppy guys. But yeah, they look like 35 years old. Yeah. And so there's this one scene where um, they're all gathering at like the parking lot of a Kmart or something like that where the parents are dropping off the kids to get on the, on the buses that go to the, to the various camps. And for whatever reason uh, the Bill Murray character, Trevor Harrison is hanging around kind of, uh, you know, chatting with people in the, in the camp Mohawk area. And there's a newspaper reporter who's there to, you know, investigate this mythical camp Mohawk and all these rich kids going there and all the crazy stuff that happening is, is, is happening. And, uh, the the guy is, you know, the, the breathless, uh, you know, kind of local TV news reporter is talking about all the crazy stuff that happens at uh, Camp Mohawk. And Bill Murray steps in and, and, and impersonates uh, somebody from Camp uh, Mohawk. And so I want to play a little clip of that. Oh, yeah. These children are going to the most glamorous of all summer camps, Camp Mohawk. There's a two-year waiting list, and every child has to be voted in. On top of all that, it costs $1,000 a week to go to Camp Mohawk. The question is, is it worth $1,000 a week? It sure is. It's the best darn camp there is. Well, are you connected with Camp Mohawk? Well, I think so. I'm the program director, Jerry Aldini. Well, how do you justify $1,000 a week? Well, we have some special programs. Uh, we're doing Shakespeare in the Round again this year, of course. Uh, our political roundtable, Henry Kissinger, will appear. Yasser Arafat is going to come out, spend a weekend with the kids, just rap with them. That's amazing. And the kids wanted animals, so this year each camper will stalk and kill his own bear in our private wildlife <laughs> preserve. Are you sure the children can, uh, can hack that? We'll see. But the real excitement, of course, is going to come at the end of the summer uh, during Sexual Awareness Week. We import 200 hookers from around the world, and each camper, armed with only a thermos of coffee and $2,000 cash, tries to visit as many countries as he can. And the winner, of course, is named King of Sexual Awareness Week and is allowed to rape and pillage the neighboring towns until camp ends. That's incredible. What do you expect for $1,000 a week? Hey, you have a good summer, too, huh? What about the girl campers? I was always wondered about that. I don't yeah, think yeah. they'd be interested in that. It's true. Um, the raping and pillaging thing was sort of the reporter wasn't, you know, you know, thrown off by that. He's like, wow, that's, that's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs>
Yeah, I almost wonder how much of that was improv. Yeah. Like, like it seems kind of like it could have been, and maybe the guy didn't really know how to react. And yeah. We're like, I don't know how much was written or not of that, to be that's honest. A good, that's a good guess. He, he didn't yeah. have the fast reflexes of a student they had. Uh, no. You know, on, no. Yeah. Where'd he get that jacket? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That work. Um, so anyway, you get the idea. You know, he's, he's making fun of Camp Mohawk, you know, kind of being over the top there. The funny thing is he's, he's making some jokes about hookers and all that, but this movie is, you know, and, and Gene Siskel lamenting there wasn't enough sex and nudity in it. There really was no nudity at all. And the sexual stuff I think was pretty light. There was some, it's like know, innuendo, innuendo, mostly. right? Yeah. It, it was really, it was really cut for being, uh, you know, edited for being a kid's movie. I think that the most aggressive stuff was again, the, this one character, um, Wendy, played by Cindy Gerling, was often seen scantily clad, uh, you know, um, wearing bikinis and stuff like that. And, and, you know, that was sort of the thing. She was really the only character that was overtly sexualized, I think. And there's even a scene early on at that same parking lot where she's telling this is, you know, a college age girl at the most, you would say, telling uh, Tripper, the Bill Murray character, that she's looking for action. Uh, that summer, she's hoping that his uh, CITs can give her a uh, good time and where he uh, starts to talk up spaz and how he uh, picked up six different nurses and they couldn't report for work the next day. And then she says that spaz couldn't wake her up with a drum and a, and a bugle or something like that. That's about the extent of the sort of things that were there. Um, the you You mentioned this before, but without Bill Murray... This movie would be nothing. No one would have ever seen it. It'd be the most obscure thing ever. Bill Murray makes this movie. Um, everything revolves around him. The scenes that don't have him in it are these little side vignette things that are kind of charming, but they're really not the through a story of the movie at all. Um, the most important parts of the movie and the most important plot lines are really driven by him. Um, there's another uh, famous scene in which um, the camp, uh, North Star Olympiad uh, participants are getting their asses handed to them. And it looks like they're going to lose for like a 12th or 13th year in a row. And Bill Murray does the famous, it just doesn't matter, uh, you know, monologue that I'm going to play now. You may have heard this one. Hey, gang, come on. Look, it just because we're losing doesn't mean it's all over. Cut the crap, Morty. I mean, the Mohawks have beaten us the last 12 years. They're going to beat us again. That's just the attitude we don't need, Phil. Sure. Mohawk has beaten us 12 years in a row. Sure, they're terrific athletes. They've got the best equipment that money can buy. Hell, every team they're sending over here has their own personal masseuse. Not masseur, masseuse. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. Do you know that every Mohawk competitor has an electrocardiogram, blood and urine tests every 48 hours to see if there's any change in his physical condition? Do you know that they use the most sophisticated training methods from the Soviet Union, East and West Germany, and the newest Olympic power, Trinidad Tobago? But it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. I tell you, it just doesn't matter. 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 Even if we win, if we win, ha! Even if we win, even if.
if we play so far over our heads that our noses bleed for a week to ten days? Even if God in heaven above comes down and points his hand at our side of the field, even if every man, woman, and child held hands together and prayed for us to win, it just wouldn't matter because all the really good-looking girls would still go out with the guys from Mohawk because they got all the money. <laughs> it just doesn't matter if we win or we lose. It just doesn't matter. It just So that was largely improvised, right? And you could hear people laughing in the background. There's a female laughing that's actually Kate Lynch, and she couldn't keep it together during the yeah, it's all real. The laughing it, is all real. Yeah. So um, you know that's a that's a pretty important scene in the movie. It's a very famous uh, scene in the movie of, of him rallying the troops. You know their their approach to some of the games. Um, you know, there's a lot of hijinks that go on during the Olympiad. There's cheating, of course, by Camp Mohawk. Um, you know, they, they cheat in a swimming contest, uh, you know, they cheat in, in various ways there. They, um, break the, the ankle or the leg of, uh, Jackie in a field hockey sort of, uh, you know, contest of, uh, whatever that was. I think it was just a regular field hockey game. And there's a basketball game scene where the, the camp, uh, Mohawk, uh, ringers that look like. Um, are playing against the CITs of uh, Camp North Star, and they're getting their asses kicked. The the Camp North Star guys can't play at all. They've never even picked up a basketball. It looks like uh, I'm pretty certain you and I could play better uh, than than these kids. But um, there's you know a scene where they're figuring out what they're going to do. They're getting their asses kicked, and here is a clip of uh, Bill Murray advising um, how to escape the situation with a little dignity. Okay, uh, the zone's not working. Uh, they're a little bit too good to cover man to man, and we can't shoot for shit. What kind of talks that for a coach, huh? Yeah, sure. Look, I'm not gonna lie to you guys. There's no way we're gonna beat this team. What are we gonna do, Trip? We're gonna lose. What? But we can lose with some self-respect. And here's the idea. And the self-respect and dignity that he was talking about is in a jump ball situation, they pull down the pants of all the Camp Mohawk uh, players and expose their their tidy whities and stuff like that, and then run off, get on the bus with a flailing Morty uh, trailing along behind them. Again, played for camp hijinks and comic effect. Um, there is, uh, you know, some other things going on in this movie that are kind of funny. Um, there's some bullying stuff that's not so funny with with Rudy that he overcomes winning the big marathon at the end. There's some things with the music that I'll mostly pass to you and comment on. I think you're going to talk a lot about the music of the movie. And then, you know, lastly, there's other little amusing scenes that are that are played uh, just sort of set up for jokes. And one of them is there's a big dance, the the social that, uh, you know, Tripper talks about at, at, at some point. And uh, there's this funny scene I just wanted to play. It always just made me laugh. Hmm. I really like to dance. I guess it starts my feet tapping and I get all happy inside. I guess it's just something I was born with. Kind of a birth defect, huh? <laughs> I thought it was a funny joke. It still makes me laugh. That's the Brenda character, one of the nerd girls that uh, Spaz and Fink are playing with when he calls him, when Fink calls Spaz a meatball. 
all in all, let me wrap up my my uh, little evaluation here. I all in all, I'm slightly long on this movie. I'd have to say, I I think. I don't necessarily think future generations are going to flock to this and say, oh, my God, this is a great undiscovered gem. I think it's largely generational in that people who grew up with, you know, Bill Murray at the kind of height of his powers, comedic powers, are going to have a fonder connection with it than maybe future generations. So people in our wheelhouse. Um, I watch it every time it comes on. If I see it, I'll sit there and watch it. I like it every time. It definitely holds up to me. But Looking at it in the cold light of day, I'm not certain 20, 30 years from now, kids are going to look at this movie and go, oh, my God, this is the quintessential movie about summer camp or anything like that. I think it's very dated. Um, you know, there's no video games. There's no, um, you know, no um, indication of any of the sort of more modern Internet themes and stuff like that that probably dominate cell phones, all the sort of things that dominate life today. I think it will be seen as very uh, quaint and dated uh, for the time it came out. That's not a bad thing. I just don't see it as being um, hugely long, but I'm slightly long on it because of Bill Murray and because it's funny and there's a charm to it. Um, So anyway, that's where I come down and I will uh, pass it over to you for your evaluation. All right, cool. So yeah, I'm going to do my usual thing, good and bad. I'm going to start with the good. Um, Obviously, Bill Murray's charisma. You know, it's funny because... Looking at Bill Murray, um, you know, his character, he's kind of this guy who gets away with everything, this charismatic anti-hero. Um, and he's kind of this classic leading man, but he's not. You know, he's not a very handsome looking dude. You know, Chevy Chase and him got in this notorious fight when uh, Chevy Chase wanted to, uh, you know, had come back as a, as a host of Saturday Night Live after he left and he wanted to do Weekend Update, who, which of course was being done by Jake Curtin and him and Bill Murray got in a big fight over this. And Chevy Chase said something like, you know, your face looks like something, you know, that that uh, Neil Armstrong would land on, like, you know, your cratery pizza face. And yeah, Bill Murray is not like this handsome dude, but somehow his charisma just makes you forget that. You know, he's got such charisma. It's unbelievable in this movie. Like he's, he, he plays like this kind of anti-hero and he totally pulls it off in every way possible. And he really carries the film, the whole film. I think even though the film has other scenes that don't involve him that are fun, um, you know, it's mostly his movie. And one of the things I really like about the, the movie is these kind of quirky radio announcements that he does kind of from the, the megaphone. And I wanted to play one of those. Uh, first. It's a wow, 43 degrees on the old Camp North Star weather dial, and that is kind of nippy for a June 25, isn't it? Whew. I'm Trooper Harrison. Ah! Ah! I'm your head counselor, and this is my wake-up show. I'll be coming at you every morning. About this time, hoping to make your summer camp experience the best available in this price range. <laughs> course across the lake over camp mohawk uh they won't be getting up for another hour or so when they do they'll be awakened by servants bearing croissants and cafe au lait oops hope i didn't hit anybody but over here at camp north star this morning we're gonna be having a delicious gruel breakfast and don't forget to ask for seconds because it's all the gruel you can eat yeah it's kind of funny right yeah I mean, I mean, I think I think that's really funny, like the whole contrast between, you know, um, 
the camps and stuff like that. And, and he, you know, it, it, it also is, is a kind of precursor to what he does in that. It just doesn't matter scene, which is kind of the best scene in the whole film. I think actually he has a couple of iconic scenes. One we didn't really talk about, which I thought we were going to talk about. And I wish I would add a clip from is the ghost story sequence, which I thought was yeah. amazing. Like the, he, he basically, there's a scene later in the film where he's at a campfire with all the CITs. And this is something I'll talk about on the bad side, which is the weird relationship between the CITs and the kids. It seems like they, they don't really have a camp for kids because there's so many seats, like they have this overnight with the CITs as if we weren't spending enough time with the CITs the whole film. Right. And they go and they have this campfire scene and Bill Murray is telling this ghost story about a killer with a hook. And then he ends up kind of having the hook in his, in his hand and showing that he's the killer or whatever. It was just kind of funny. And, yeah. and it's just, it's just a really great scene. And it reminded me of that outdoor school I went to because there was, you know, the camp, the camp counselors there told us ghost stories at, at the camp, just like that. So it was, it was kind of a cool iconic scene, but I think the best other than it just doesn't matter. The best scenes in the movie are actually between him and Chris Makepeace. And, you know, I think it gives the movie kind of some heart to it. And it's like kind of, you know, as a kid, a nerdy kid, even though I didn't see this as a kid, I would have definitely identified with this character because I was like, you know, there's one scene where you where they have a game and they have to play like shirts versus skins. Yeah, man, I always hated that because I was always super flabby with little baby man boobs, you know, as a kid, <laughs> I wasn't in shape. And, and I, I always was mortified that I would have to play skins. Yeah. Um, you know, because I was just flabby. Um, but anyway, uh, there's this great, uh, you know, they have this great relationship and there's this early scene where it seems like, if I'm not mistaken, Chris make pieces, he's at a diner, but it looks like he's running away. It's like yeah. a, and um, it's, it's like a the, bus, station, it's the bus diner. station. Yeah. yeah where the, the, the bus stops at like, yeah, a diner is where it happens. Right. Yeah. And like Tripper catches up with them. And that's the scene I want to play now, because I think this, this is kind of funny too, because it kind of is a, is related to some of the other characters Bill Murray plays in my mind. But let's let's listen to this part with the at this uh diner. And stick it right in between their teeth. And then I'll slap them around the head a couple of times. They'll go out for just a couple of seconds, they'll be unconscious, and while they're doing that, I'll go for the corkscrew. And I'll grab them and I'll take that corkscrew and I will stick it right into the voice box. I would twist that mofo, I would twist it into his white box, I'd rip that thing, rip it out, and he'll talk like this for the rest of his life. I don't want to hurt anyone. Just want them to like me. Why? You make one good friend a summer, and you're doing pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I like that that Bill Murray's like this guy who doesn't play with play by the rules. He's kind of this rebel and this this kind of anti-hero, but he's still kind of got this cool relationship with this kind of nerdy kid. And like, um, it's funny because when he's doing all that stuff with the Swiss army knife and the toothpick and jamming it in and all this, um, he's almost kind of a cross between his character. I didn't mention when we talked about nerds, we didn't talk about the Saturday Night Live nerds, yeah. right? That was a skit he created. He, he creates this character, um, pizza face, Todd DeLamuca. And it's like, this voice is almost like that character, but it's also reminds me of the character he would play a year later in Caddyshack, uh, Carl, Carl. Spackler. Oh. Yeah. So it's like, he's kind of conjuring that almost cartoony voice. And, but it's like, it ends with this great line. You know, if you make one friend, you know, you, you're doing good. And, and it's like kind of a cool line. And, uh, I really like the scenes between them. I think they're, 
I think it definitely was correct for them to go back and add that in because when it's just these vignettes, for one thing, the vignettes don't all focus on Bill Murray and bringing more focus on him makes the movie better, yeah. right? The more scenes he's in, like you said, they're just better scenes. And so um, because he's obviously the best actor of everybody on the whole film, even you know, though everyone that, does fine, you know, everyone does pretty well. Uh, I think he's by far the best. You know, what's funny about that scene is that, you know, he orders French fries when he goes in and he sees Rudy and he doesn't eat them, doesn't even touch them before they leave. And that bothers the shit out of my wife. She's like, how can you oh, not yeah. eat his French fries? It does look so good. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> I know. I'm surprised it's not poutine, though, you know, yeah. you, uh, because it's Canada. Um, at any rate, uh, now, the other the other thing that's kind of good, but also a criticism in a way, is this whole loose vignette style of plotting, you know, with the with punctuated by these random, uh, absurd kind of uh, intercom messages from Bill Murray and then these various scenes. Um, but one scene I really kind of thought was cool, and I wish there would have been more of this because it actually involves the kids at the camp is the scene in the dining hall, uh, the the kind of we want gossip scene. So let's play that, because I thought this was a really unique, weird scene that showed where the movie could have gone. Less flat, more stack. Last summer's hottest couple have split. I can't tell you their names, but her initials are AL, and he's the hottest CIT on wheels. We all know they spent most of last summer in the bushes, but the question is, will true love bloom again? And speaking of CITs, there's a certain girl named Wendy that's giving all the guys wet dreams. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so that's like a kid. That chick is like a kid at the camp. And yeah. it's one of the few times you actually see the kids interact with the CITs in a real way. Like, like you do toward the Olympiad, there's more of it, but it seems like most of the Olympiad and most of the, like the basketball game is all the CITs doing everything. Like what the fuck are the kids doing there? Yeah. Like, it's like, that's one of the weirdest things about this movie. So I really like this scene because it shows a way they, they had them interact. And there's a couple scenes like that but they're kind of few and far between. So I thought that was one of the cool things uh, to have this kind of uh, kid be like more aware, like this, this kid actually have some kind of uh, street smarts and be aware of what was going on with the CITs. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, anyway. So, so the other thing, I think the movie really comes alive in the last 30 or 40 minutes when the Olympiad happens, I think, you know, it's, it's kind of, there's some funny sequences, but they're kind of hit or miss to me. Up until that point, you know, you have these different sequences, mostly with the CITs, and then you have some really good scenes with Rudy and Tripper. Um, and then you have some other scenes with like Roxanne and Rudy, uh, uh, Roxanne and Tripper, like the dance sequence and stuff like that, where they're dancing to, interestingly enough, the song Making It, which was the theme song <laughs> to a very short-lived uh, sitcom starring David Naughton, who sang the song, and David Naughton would also work with John Landis later in American Werewolf in London. But that's crazy that they use that song. Um, by the way, that song made it to number five on the charts. It was a big hit. A lot bigger than the than 
than the uh, sitcom it was from, which lasted like four episodes. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I love all the scenes of the Olympiad. I think it's great. I love the hot dog eating contest with Fink against the stomach, who is like the ringer for for Mohawk, and he gets out of the back of a limo to go. Like, it's really funny. <laughs> like, supposed to, is he supposed to be a counselor or like a kid? The guy's like 45 years old. Yeah, that's one of the issues with this movie is how old all the counselors are because, like, you know, there's guys with big, thick, fucking Kurt Rambis style mustaches on the Mohawk basketball team. They look like 35 years old. Exactly. You know, it's like, it's really ridiculous. Um, other thing I like is some of the uh, supporting cast. I think Spaz is amazing. I love the scene in the Olympiad where he has to do the balancing of the cups. Yeah, You know, he's got to carry and they're all spaz, spaz, spaz. And the actor is just so tense. It's actually a really tense scene and it's really, really good. And um, yeah, the ice cream over the head is iconic. You know, it's silly, but it's good. Um, The tennis game, you know, and then there's this whole scene under the girl's cabin, which reminds me of a similar scene in Revenge of the Nerds. And actually Animal House has a similar scene where John Belushi is spying on a girl on a ladder and ends up falling off. Right. Um, And, and, you know, so it's kind of a classic scene and, you know, it's, it's pretty good. Um, And then some of the music is, uh, is great. I love the use of naked and I think it's funny. Uh, But my favorite piece of music in the movie is the fucking meatballs theme by Rick Dees. I wish Rick Dees would have done all of the music to this movie. So let's play a little bit of the meatballs theme from Rick Dees. Dude, that rules. That rules. And the thing that's funny is this movie was scored by legendary Oscar winning, uh, uh, you know, composer Elmer Bernstein. And it's so it's so weird because there's like these weird kind of classical dramatic uh, pieces and they work well, like in some scenes, like the scene with Rudy in the final kind of four mile race. He has to run against uh, Cap Mohawk. That's actually pretty good with the classical music. It's kind of a serious scene and it works, but this movie has so much shifts in tone that I'll talk about in the bad side with the bad part of the music, but the other good part of the music is, are you ready for the summer? So let's play a little bit more of that, which you heard a lot in the trailer anyway, but we'll play a little more. Yeah, I mean, that's so great. So Are You Ready for the Summer and the Rick D's music and making it, I think, are great. But let's talk about the bad side of things and let's start with the other music in this movie. Because this music, this movie has such weird shifts in tone. Like, I think the Rudy and Bill Murray scenes, um, uh, Rudy and Tripper scenes work. It's a change in tone from the comedic thing. But then some of the music is just fucking bizarre. Um, and let's uh, let's play... Uh, this song, Terry Black, uh, this song by Terry Black uh, that is used in, in the movie and how fucking weird it is. Let's say it was the moon dust <laughs> that drifted down from heaven to fall upon your shoulder. And nestle in your eyes 
This is dude. Like, what the fuck? It's like, <laughs> yeah. What the fuck is this? Like some fucking like uh fucking lounge scene, or I, I just picture like a couple sitting on a campfire or something. Well, it's it was like, used. It was used in the CIT overnight. You know, kind of romantic moonlight sort of thing leading up to the ghost story scene that you talked about. So they're trying to make it seem like this is where all the CITs who are pairing off with each other are kind of falling in love or re-falling in love in the case of ale and wheels or, you know, whatever it is. So I don't disagree with what you're saying. It's kind of, the yeah, it's, it's, it's more music that like 60 year olds would fall yeah, in love yeah, to, yeah, not yeah. teenagers. Yeah, like teenagers right. never listen to the schmaltzy shit. No, they were and listening we, to making it. <laughs> yeah. They're listening to making it. They should have had Rick D's do more meatballs. <laughs> Yeah, that's more. I, I mean, that music is awesome, but this yeah. music sucks. And then there's this other song that that was another single from the album. It made like number thirty nine on the charts. I mean, obviously, making it was a bigger hit. Um, and it's called "Good Friend" by Mary McGovern. Let's play a little bit of this. Good grief. Uh, I know it's so terrible. Uh, like it's just weird. It's it it shows the amateurishness of amateurish amateurishness of the production. Like it's 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 just weird that they would put together these weird disparate kinds of music and the tone just seems weird but during I, these scenes. I think you described it earlier as being they shot a, I mean you could see that they shot all these Bill Murray scenes where he improvised. They shot all these scenes with the CITs. They shot all these kind of background scenes, maybe with some of the other kids and counselors and stuff like that. And then I think when they were editing it, they're like, well, we don't even have a fucking movie. Like, I mean, they they, they just tried to like, okay, we got to, Bill Murray's great. There's not enough of him and the kid, uh, Rudy. We got to film some more of those. I just think that that all this is just a byproduct of them not even having a, a thread through the right, entire movie. Right, it's just right. like a bunch of, like you said before, vignettes of things that they tried to stitch together. And the different music is just indicative of that to me. Yeah, uh, that's true. Now, the other thing that's weird about this movie is the marketing. Like if you've seen the Meatballs poster, that is really weird because it doesn't really represent what the movie's like at all. It's much more like a sex comedy. It's much more like a, a much more sexual than yeah. the movie actually is. Like you said, there's this little innuendo about, you know, this girl giving guys wet dreams and there's some scenes of her in the bikini, you know, and all this, but there's almost no sex sex in this movie. I mean, they talk about sex a lot, yeah. right? There's the scene in the cabin where, uh, you know, um, Fink and Spaz are under the cabin and they're talking about, uh, they're reading like romance novels to each other and talking about, you know, uh, whether it's possible to get pregnant or whatever in certain ways. It's it's like there, there's a lot of sexual talk, but there's not any sexuality really in the film. But the poster has like Bill Murray and he's got his kind of shirt pulled up and these women are like rubbing his like washboard stomach that he totally didn't have in real life. And and it's like they're like, I think Sydney Girling is kind of drawn on there. She's like most the most like these girls, but they're like these hot bikini girls like all kind of jumping on Bill Murray on the poster. And it's just weird because that's not what the movie is about at all. Yeah. And um, he doesn't, you know, whether he sexually harasses one woman in, in the movie is another question, which we'll get to. 
Um, but but he doesn't really do that with the with the with the women girl the CITs at all. No, you know. But it's like represented that way, which is weird. Now yeah, let's talk weird. about let's talk about the CITs. Um, so the CITs whole thing is really weird because again, you know, it's ironic that during the production they kept kids from being actually having a summer camp and the kids sabotaged them out of revenge because they hated the filming. Well, this film has almost no kids in it who are actually at the camp. You see the kids get on the buses and you see a few scenes of kids here and there. But most like the vast majority of the film is the CITs just kind of having camp. They don't really seem to do any counseling or any training. All they seem (laughs) to do is do fun stuff like play tennis and go on uh, kayaks and race boats around. And and then they during the, the basketball game, they play the game the kids are just watching it's just so weird to me like i it kind of makes the movie seem weird because i guess they didn't really want to have it be a totally a kids movie so they had these kind of teenagers it was more marketed toward teenagers i guess than kids even though when i was like 10 years old this movie was like the holy grail every kid wanted of my age wanted to see it you know but it was like you know but same with porkies when that came out even though that was a much more explicit film and obviously, we didn't talk about the influence of this film, and that was directly influencing a film like that, even though that's an actual sex film with like boobs everywhere and like very explicit like masturbation references and stuff like that. Um, that was actually even more successful than this movie. Uh, it was a huge blockbuster. But it's like the CITs, it's just weird. You have all these counselors in training, you're not training them. And how many counselors in training do you need? Versus counselors. How many actual counselors are there? Like, it seems like there's a, there's mainly Roxanne and Bill Murray. And then there may be one other guy. There's like two, there's like two dudes, like the ones who were carrying the glass pane that got broken were both counselors. Right. And there's one of them. Right. There's the one guy who, who's, who's like organizing the, the soccer game and says the kid can't, you know, he's criticizing yeah. Rudy. I think that's guys a real one, yeah. but for the most part, like there's more CITs than anybody else represented in the film. I mean, you see tons of kids around in the background, but they don't yeah. really have that many kids characters. Um, so it's kind of weird and it's kind of vague as to what a CIT is and a counselor is. Cause like you said, you pointed that out, but I'm just like, I wouldn't have known that like that these guys were counselors. I wasn't sure. Um, so it, so yeah, they're, um, you know, obviously the Olympiad is where we do see some kids participate, but it's still mostly CITs. Yeah. And almost every event, like the swimming and everything, it's mostly the CIT. So that's really weird. Now, okay. When I watched this with my lockdown film club friends, the scene that everybody kind of gasped over and everybody was like, what the fuck was this scene where Bill Murray and uh, Kate Lynch have kind of a wrestling match? And he is like kind of, kind of forcing her to wrestle and it's all supposedly in good fun. Um, but you know, and then it makes it, he makes it look like she's pinning him when someone else comes in and stuff, but it's a really fucking aggressive scene. Like I was like blown away by this scene when I watched it. I don't think a scene like that now would play at all. And I don't know if it really stands the test of time to me. Like it's really weird, especially knowing that he actually wrestled a woman uh, behind the scenes on one of the films that complained about him. Um, you know, like, I guess, I guess it was the most recent film where he'd kind of like 
you know, kind of grabbed onto this woman and stuff. And he had a couple of other incidents like that. So it was kind of weird. Now, obviously in the film, Kate Lynch, you know, in the Canadian documentary you watch, she doesn't say anything bad about this. It's all fun to her. But on the screen, she looks kind of really intimidating. And I almost wonder if this was like improvised in a way she didn't really know it was coming. Uh, because she kind of looks like deer in the headlights, a couple of scenes to me. At least that's the way I saw it. I don't know what you thought about this. Yeah, I, I definitely got the sense where people are uncomfortable or it might look aggressive. We, it's interesting. My wife and I had a conversation, several conversations about this scene. And she watched it several times with me as you know we were doing research here. And her take on it is that it's not bad, as bad as it seems in that their characters, like it's all about context, right? So putting right. aside Bill Murray's personal issues or you know behind the scenes stuff, the characters in the movie and what actually happened on screen, it's all about context. They had had a relationship for several summers. They had, right. um, you, you know, if, if they didn't have any relationship at all. And he grabbed her and was jumping on her and stuff like that. That's a different thing than this may be completely normal in this sort of context of their larger relationship. Yeah. At times she looked really annoyed. Like she did not want to do that, but there's a difference between being annoyed by an ex who's just being kind of a jerk right, and right. being attacked or somehow, um, you know, ha- having forced upon it, uh, him upon her. My wife's take was like, this is sort of, okay within the context of their supposed relationship. It wasn't as rapey as maybe other people thought. Um, I kind of, I get that. I mean, that makes sense to me. I sort of, she just looks uncomfortable. She just looks like, like, and I, and it's hard to say if she looks uncomfortable because she's afraid or being traumatized or she looks uncomfortable because she's really annoyed and that character, she's trying to act. And that character is trying to get work done they're trying to do something on the schedule and he's just being a jerk and she's probably annoyed with him. Just like, you know, a girlfriend might be annoyed with her boyfriend. So my wife's take was that this wasn't sexually aggressive as much as she was just annoyed with him. Right. But without overthinking it, if you're just looking at the scene and you don't really know much about the movie and you're not really parsing that they had been a couple on and off for many years, apparently during the summers, then it could come across differently than if you apply that context to it, if that makes sense. Right. I guess that makes sense. But what's what's actually cool, what's what's a positive, is the, the whole casting of her in the first place, because she is not what you would think would be, you know, what they'd want to cast in a movie like this. You would think she would, uh, and actually they were looking for more like a kind of bombshell, kind yeah. of a actress to play like this part. And what happened was they auditioned her and they loved her reading of it. And they're like, we want to put your voice in the body of like a, you know, more of a bikini blonde kind of. So it was kind of cool that they cast kind of almost like a tomboyish uh, character who looked just kind of like a, you know, who was kind of believable in that part. And it was right. and it was kind of cool. Um, as far as like the other things with this movie is it's just not that laugh out loud funny. I did not laugh that much at this movie when I watched it. And I actually kind of agree with Gene in a way I wanted, uh, you know, maybe I wanted it to be a little more over the top. Um, and more like, again, I don't know how animal house holds up. I haven't watched it in, you know, probably 20 years. Um, but 
But again, I just don't think like when I think of like Fast Times, I compare it most to that. And Fast Times is a movie that holds up for me because it deals with issues in a serious manner. But there's actually legitimately hilarious parts, especially around Jeff Spicoli. I mean, I, I when I watched this again, I was laughing out loud. But with Meatballs, I wasn't really laughing out loud. I was entertained, especially by the Olympiad. I really enjoyed the Olympiad. And I liked watching the race at the end, even though it's kind of a weird, quiet kind of sequence. Um, I enjoyed the whole Olympiad a lot. But the rest of the movie, eh, you know, I was amused by it. I like the ghost story. I like it just doesn't matter. But I wasn't like laughing out loud. So to me, it just wasn't that funny. And it's such a weird movie. It fits in such a weird place because it's not a sex comedy in the way that you would think of as a sex comedy, like a teen sex comedy. Like even Fast Times has moments of a sex comedy, even though Fast Times is like this crazy complex combination of drama and comedy together, right? Because it's so serious and deals with like abortion and stuff. And I think that's why that movie stands the test of time. Now, this movie did have a huge influence. And, um, you know, obviously the Spaz character, even though there were some nerd references before that, I think Spaz was kind of, every time someone made a teen movie, they would want to, put someone like that in it, yeah. you know, it, and, and I think it's because of the, the success of this film. And then it obviously it influenced, influenced stuff like Porky's. For some reason, I wrote up the Academy. I don't even know if anybody's seen fucking up I, the Academy. I have. Yeah. Tim it's Matheson, the Mad Magazine. That, yeah. 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 Up the Academy, like private school and, uh, you know, last yeah. American Virgin, you name it, all these, all these kind of teen comedies. Yeah. And then of course, not another teen movie, which was made in the early 2000s. That's practically an, a complete homage to this film. It's almost like a remake of Meatballs. Um, you know, it's so much like that movie and it's kind of an homage. So I think it had that influence. As to my evaluation, I'm going to go slightly short on it. Because I don't know about that wrestling scene, for one thing, how it's going to play out. I don't know how Bill Murray's kind of legacy is going to play out, even though I think, you know, if you look at his talent and his influence as a kind of comedy actor, he has this unique kind of charisma that I think is kind of his alone. And I think that might stand the test of time, but I'm still going to go slightly short on it. Uh, maybe, and it could be, maybe that's because I didn't see it as a kid and it didn't have this lasting influence on me, Yeah, I you know, because that. I, I think that could be part of it. You know, like, there's fast times watching it again. I've just remembered how much it influenced the way I saw the world. And this movie obviously couldn't have, cause I never saw it, even though it has elements of things that I would see in other films. So I'm going to go slightly short this time. By the way, I recovered from my, uh, stroke earlier and the, uh, in animal house, the uh, it's the Omegas that uh, Greg Marmalard and uh, Niedermeyer uh, frat house where all the rich snobby kids are. Um, I can't believe I forgot it at that moment, but I did remember it. I did not look it up. I just remembered it. So anyway. Um, all right. So I went slightly long. You went the opposite, slightly short. And I, I get that. I think it'll be interesting to see o- over time how this uh, plays out in the larger Bill Murray uh, pantheon. Um, it'll be, I think, also interesting to talk about other Bill Murray movies when we get to oh, yeah. things like Lost in Translation, which guarantee we're going to get to. Um, I have a lot to say about that movie uh, in the future, and I'm sure you do, as well as things like Stripes, things like Ghostbusters. We'll get to all of those. So any last parting words of wisdom you have for the audience up on our 26th uh, No, I episode? think you should just play the meatballs theme again. 
I write right. these. And then we go into our usual theme after that. And we, we just wrap it up that way. Cause that's my final word on it. All right. Meatballs. You got it. Done. Right.